The Competitive 40K Network presents Art of War. Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. Now your host, Nick Nanavati. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another super exciting Art of War podcast. I'm really excited today because this week we have my friend and teammate, Mr. Jack the Snacks Harpster. Jack, how are you doing? I'm doing real good. Glad to be on the podcast. When we when we found out who took first versus who took second, John turned to me and was like, have fun on the podcast. That's right. This past weekend, you and a couple other Art of War team members, John Lennon and Quentin Johnson, we all went to uh, a little, little local GT, and he took uh, a list with a title that I absolutely love. What was that title? What was the title, Nick? Let your meme, don't let your memes be dreams. And you know what? That's going to be the title of this episode, too. Yep. So. Don't just let your memes be dreams. Exactly. Now, what does that mean to you, Jack? What did, what did that have, what happened there? I mean, I have the opportunity to take the Lord of Skulls, right? So I'm, I'm going to. Is it optimal for world leaders? Well, we'll get into that later. Who knows? Maybe, maybe not. Probably not. But it is good enough that I can make it work. And it is the biggest chungus possible, right? It is this huge, giant death tractor with blood tanks on the back. The thing has a a skull hurler, which is literally an arm gun that hurls skulls, and it has an axe the size of most tanks. Okay, this is the most 40K model that has ever existed. And, I like, come on, I can put it on the table, right? Like... I can tell you're really excited about your Lord of Skulls, and that's really what we're excited to talk about. This is part one of a two-part episode, everybody. In part one, we're going to get to know Jack. For those of you who don't know, Jack is a man of many, many armies, and he cannot stay in the same army for more than a, about a day or so. So the flavor of the week here has been Lord of Skulls, and man, did it work. So we're going to figure out how. We're going to figure out how Jack can switch factions so frequently, how Jack can play the Lord of Skulls and take it to a GT and win. Seriously, like that's just something he can pick up and do. How does someone do that? And then we're going to talk about world leaders in part two. So for those of you who are patrons, you can become a patron on patreon.com slash AOW40K. You get access to the part twos of all of our podcasts. There's 200 plus episodes. And this particular part two with Jack, we're going to talk about world leaders, matchups, how to actually put the world leaders down their throats and kill them. And then also the, the tournament itself. We're going to go through your games, Jack. So are you yeah. excited? I'm excited. You know what the alternate title to my list was that I didn't that I didn't put in in time? No, what's that? Just a YouTube link to Shia LaBeouf's, you know, just do it uh, meme. You know, like where he's like, just do it. And he like crushes his hand and then he does like the flex and goes, do it. Um, but I figured, you know. Don't Let Your Memes Be Dreams is a better title for a podcast. This, this actually works out much better, Jack, and I know you were thinking ahead like that, so thank you. Of course, absolutely. You can't title a podcast episode a YouTube link. So it's been a while since we've had you on the show, actually, but the way we do things now is we talk about the players and we get to know about like a little bit about their background, their play style. So how did you really get from, how did you get into Warhammer, and then how did you get to be ITC champion? That's a it's a long yeah. that's a long story. Well, don't so, don't make it ten years long. Let's let's try to make it a few minutes. Well, maybe eleven, maybe coming up on twelve years ago or something. I was a I was a kid and I was in college and I played Magic and I was looking for a local store to play Magic at for Friday Night Magic. All right, this was a while ago, back when Magic you know was not. Um, but back in that day, I found a local store called The Only Game in Town. And that's where Nikki over here used that's to true. play. Jack and I go way back. A good old target. 
Yeah, long, long time ago, back when we were on Team Roll to Wound. Um, but back there like 11-something years ago, um, there was that store, Target. So I went there. I'd been there a few times in the past for Friday Night Magic. And I saw a poster on the wall for a Mordheim League. And for some reason that I will not, I don't know, that caused me to ask if I could learn Warhammer at the store because they advertised that they taught uh, Warhammer. Uh, you remember uh, Jersey Joe? Yeah, Jersey Joe was the man. Jersey Joe was great. Um, he taught me how to play Warhammer. I played some Marines, I think, into some Orcs. It was like 500 points. It was like the Battle of Black Reach or something. I don't know. It was a box set like 10 years ago. Uh, Salt on Black Reach. I think yeah, that was Space it. Space Rangers Orcs. I remember this. Yeah, I had some Terminators. They were real cool. <laughs> they had a box dreadnought. It's that used to be one of the big models in the day. Yes, yes. Chunka, 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 chunka. Um, and so I started playing, and I'm like a, usually a competitively minded player. I usually like to try to get better at the things that I play. Right. I usually try to just get better and better and better at what I'm doing. And so also, Target was a pretty high skill level store. It had Nick. It had a couple of other players, uh, Cameron Panero. It had several other people in the community that you don't unfortunately really see anymore. But uh, it was the spot to be back. It in the was day. the spot to be back in the day. There were a bunch of GT winners there. Our our monthly RTTs, Nick. You remember those? They were like. 14 people where eight of them were like GT winners. They were knockdown drag out slug fests. Oh yeah. I yeah. Mean, still, still names you may recognize like Sean Naden frequented those events and he and I, he and you, we all went at it back in the day. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that was, that was my store where I uh, kind of, kind of grew up as a Warhammer player and also grew up as a person um, and started going to events. I remember I went to my first, went to my first Nova and I took, Gray Knights with Tau, it wasn't very good. And I went like four and four or five and three or something. It was pretty good for a first event. Yeah, yeah, it was like a it was like a year in, but still. Mm-hmm. Um and then the following year I won the Nova Invitational, uh, which was very fun. And then I about a month afterwards I won BFS. So I went to uh I went to Nova for my first year. And that was, that was fun. It was like four, four hour drive, four and a half hour drive was the furthest I'd ever traveled for Warhammer. And it was like a huge event for me. I'd never been to an event that size. It was awesome. I had a great time and I managed to go four and four basically on my first uh, GT, which was great. I had an army that was pretty, pretty mediocre. (laughs) It was like Tau plus Grey Knights. It was not amazing. It was, it was fine. And uh, I just liked going to events. I also started to make friends at different events. And when you make friends at different events and you show up and you see them repeatedly, you want to go back to see your friends and then you're stuck. Then you're in the 40K competitive scene because that's where all your friends are. And if you want to see them, better keep going to events. Yeah, it is pretty much how it works. That's how you kind of transition from I play this game like, you know, as a normal person to I play this game and it's my hobby. Yes. And once, once you are a competitive Warhammer player with a local scene and friends, um, right, you're done. That's it. The retention rate is <laughs> it's pretty pretty ridiculous uh, of people. They just you don't really leave. It becomes your lifestyle, your way of life. So now that we're lifestyle 40k players, that's how, right. how, how did you go from like four and four at Nova to winning LVO? Yeah, you know, it's quite the path of scale progression. Well. The community in the Northeast at that point in time was a very good 40K community. So I was playing a lot of good players on repeat. We were getting ready for events. And 
you know, I, it took some time. So a year after I went to my first Nova, I did win the Invitational for the following year, and I did win BFS the year after that. But then I went on about like a seven-year period where I didn't win anything. I mean, one of those years was COVID, where life didn't exist. But I did go quite some time without, without winning anything. And, you know, I'd always do well. I could take games off of... I, like I was always a threat to a good to good players, and I was quite good, but I just never quite managed to put it together at events. Um, but I was working in you know in retail. I was the um, I think when I moved down, I was the like print manager at an Office Depot. Kind of a crap job, honestly. But there was an opening down in Tallahassee for the same position, so I moved down to be like near uh, Art of War, to be near all my friends, uh, to get a change of scenery, a change of pace, to really mix things up. And then eventually I left my job and joined Art of War. That was a great decision all around, honestly. And getting right back into the groove of it, again, playing against top-level competition, I really leveled up again. And then I started to go to events, and I started to take them down. So uh, I... Took down, I think, um, Warzone Atlanta. I think was the first one I, I won in a in a long time. And then I, you know, I won Nova. I won uh, GW Chicago. I won several other GTs, culminating in uh, where I was in a top contention for the ITC. Yeah, you kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, obviously, I've known you for years and years and years. But if I was speaking to other high caliber players, they may not have heard of you for that time period. And Basically, you had this big breakout year where, you know, you had been floating by the top tables and you may have met a lot of people, but you weren't like a, a household 40K name at that point until you took down like three or four super major terms in the same year, just back to back to back, win LVO, win the ITC. And that was like a, it was like a switch had flipped in your brain. I'd never seen anything like it. What, what changed from your, failing to really put up the W's over the seven-year period, um, aside from, like, you know, the, the company you keep? Like, how, what was the practice difference? Um, I think the time off may have helped somewhat. Really, really, really took me from kind of, I, I don't know, every, I would just throw myself into events, and I wouldn't, taking some time off, I really, you know, missed going to events. I really missed 40K. And so I kind of rediscovered, like, not like a love for it, but like I, I, some time off definitely helped. And then I, it was forced, right? I was not going to take it, um, that time off on my own. Um, then I came back and I, I think getting, taking a break, coming back and then putting my focus on it and then having a great team around me really helped me really feel like comfortable, really helped me um, develop how I played, my style and everything again. You know, it's it's kind of like um, an NBA player taking some time off, reworking on their shooting form, and then coming back and doing well. Interesting. Nice. So a lot of just coming back, doing well, team environment, good, uh, you know, that break really did you well. You said it developed your play style. What would you describe your play style as? Largely, it's proactive. It's um, aggressive on the table. Water skulls aggressive. <laughs> Baby, you better believe it. Um, 
It usually involves making proactive moves to take board position away from my opponent and to impose my game plan on my opponent rather than waiting and being reactive. I do also have a soft spot in my heart for psychic nonsense armies that sprint around the table doing a whole lot of nothing. Um, that was just twenty-seven step plans. Uh, this twenty-seven step plans, if they're not if they're if they're not under you know if they're not over twenty steps, it's not worth doing. I still love my Seer Council in eighth edition list, not seventh edition, eighth edition. <laughs> that was when it stopped being good. <laughs> yeah, that, that's when it wasn't broken. <laughs> So, a really aggressive board control. Now, we've had a lot of players on, and I ask them always what their play style is. So, when we, we talk about aggressive players, there's a lot of different approaches to it. Are you an aggressive player, like, I'm going to your deployment zone to kick you out of it? Or are you trying to table them? Or are you just trying to dominate board control, and then if, if they can't do anything from there, you're chill? Usually the second one. Um, Oftentimes what I'll do is I will aggressively take a position on the board that will cause me to win the game eventually, right? I control most of the objectives. I have put my threat bubbles over my opponent's objectives, and I can sit and I can win the game without doing anything. And then I pass the ball to my opponent, and I go, hey, put the ball in their court and say, hey, would you like to do something about it? And if they do something about it, then I jump all over them, and then that's when the the like aggression lever has been flipped, right? That's when you go all in, you keep following up on attacks with more attacks to pressure them back, keep them off objectives, and force them to defend themselves instead of playing the game. So what I think is really interesting there is you described it as almost a control army, where like if you put yourself in the midfield objectives and then you're on the primaries, and then if they don't do something, they're losing, and if they do, do something, it kind of activates your army, and then you can just layer attacks into them, as you put it. When I play control armies, and I, I let, would describe myself as a control player as well, it's more with a defensive mindset, though. I'm like trying to evade hits. I'm like, if I'm not taking damage and I'm keeping primary Eamon, or I'm trading up, that kind of thing, then eventually I'll win a material war, points or even I can just win in the back half by leveraging a points advantage. If you're running in the middle of the table trying to get proactive control like that, Aren't you going to open yourself up to getting the first blow of hits dealt to you through like charges and fast mobile shooting and things, and then all of a sudden you're at a material disadvantage? Potentially. So depending on what army you're playing changes how you're looking to approach the game. So if you're playing an army like Blood Angels in 9th edition or World Leaders now, they tend to play very similar. Um, if you're playing an army like that, you don't want to just put your army in the center of the board and get hit. You will lose the trade war too fast. Right. What you want to do is you want to establish control of objectives by like putting spawn on an objective, putting your units up in midfield in ruins, and covering like things with heroic interventions and minus one damage strats and things like that, and making it so that you have established control of the center and you're very hard to attack, and you've control over objectives. Right. So in ninth edition, that was I would have you know sanguinary guard covering an objective, they tow in behind a wall with a six-inch rogue over the objective. So it's difficult to interact with it. Um, in World Eaters, I can throw spawn on an objective and if you and put like eight bound behind a wall nearby. And if you go to deal with the spawn, if you shoot them, I'll sticky the objective. If you charge them, you've killed some spawn. Congrats. And you have to charge them with something real to kill them because they are very tough. And then eight bound will come and eat you. Um, so it it it's establishing passive control of the objectives by putting, like, by getting control of them behind walls in safe positions to where you can project your threat onto your opponent. 
If you're running something like custodies, oftentimes you don't have that privilege. And a lot of the time you'll have to set up to take the hit as best you can, right? Avoid positions where you're just going to get shooting galleried and maybe try and go to objectives where it's annoying for your opponent to attack. Maybe they can only get like one or two things to shoot you or they'd have to charge you through the wall. You can fight first or minus one damage or whatever, things like that. With custodies, you, tr you don't let your opponent just tee off on you and hit you as hard as they want, but you are going to have to accept that your opponent may hit you first. A lot of the reason for that is their speed. Custodies, you can take Blade Champions, you can Rapid Ingress things, but you're not going to have the same raw speed that World Leaders are going to have. World Leaders have the ability to sit outside of your opponent's ability to hit you and say, hey, if you come anywhere within like 25 inches of me, I'm going to charge you. So Custodies and World Leaders, you're talking about, and basically they're different armies that you play in your repertoire, and they, it's kind of that aggressive style done by each of them. And they, they approach it differently, and you even mentioned your Blood Angels from previous editions, but what I'm ultimately seeing is either you're tough enough to just basically tank the hit, like Custodies, you try to bait and trade up with them, like the Chaos Spawn example, where you, they have to send something real to kill some Chaos Spawn, and if not, you uniquely have the sticky advantage where shooting you is just not enough because you'll hold it anyway. Um, or some weird heroic intervention shenanigan like in previous editions with Angel Sacrifice. So are you, when you're picking factions and going through the repertoire of 40k armies, I've noticed you're also able to army hop and identify very niche things like the heroic intervention positioning or using Chaos Spawn to set up trade-ups. Um, you know, how do you identify that so quickly, army to army to army, and then apply that to your player style and figure out a way to make any army or, or almost any army work to your approach? Um, well, the number one secret is hyper-focus, <laughs> um, where just like I fixate on the army for a while. Like oftentimes it'll be what I think about in the back of my brain at all, like and most times when I'm not actively doing something, I'll just like be turning over ideas in my head. A lot of the time for an army, I will deep dive it. So if I'm looking to play an army and I don't play it, right, I think, oh, this is interesting, which is usually what I do. I, I kind of have a rule now where, or at least for like the last year or so, that I don't play armies I don't want to play. Like, that, that seems like a pretty self-explanatory It is. You would think that. But a lot of people think, oh, I have to play X or Y to go to this event in order to do well. right? I don't want to be playing this army, but I, I have to if I want to play well. None of that. I don't play armies I don't want to play. So, so you're not actually army hopping for an advantage necessarily? Not necessarily. I mean, a lot of the, I'd be lying if I said the armies I played last year were bad. Right. Oftentimes they weren't. Um, but... I'm not playing just the new hotness, right? I didn't play Harlequins when they were broken. I didn't play Guard when they were broken. Didn't play Tyranids. I didn't play Drukhari when they were broken, right? All of those. I played them when I found something interesting in them. So after Harlequins got nerfed three times, after Drukhari had been nerfed like four times, that's when I'd be like, oh, that's an interesting army. I want to play them. And to your answer fun. before, you said hyper-focus is really your, kind of your secret weapon. Being able to constantly just think about something will make you better at it. And it's much easier to constantly think about something you want to think about. Yeah, you're not going to get good with an army you hate. Because you're not going to want to think about it. You're not going to want to play with it. You're not going to want to to like to do anything with it. If you want to get better, I, oftentimes I get a question that's like, hey, should I take, should I put my effort into this army or that army? 
Army A is the army I love. I have it beautifully painted. I know all the models' names. Uh, I know all of their backstory. It's a little weaker. Army B is an army that I despise. I hate to play. I hate myself when I play it. And I don't like. It doesn't match me. It doesn't fit me. And I go, well, that's easy. You play Army A because you want to play it. You will get better at playing it. And if you don't want to play it, you won't. Right. The, the, it sounds so simple when you put it that way, but like you said, there's I think there's so many people who put undue pressure on themselves to play the best thing or the perception of the best thing. And like you said, through ninth edition, you weren't playing Tyranids. They were dominant for like half of the edition. You were beating people with Tyranids. You were playing things that had been around for months and months, maybe years, and kind of reinventing the wheel in a way, putting new life into an already explored idea. And you know, hyper fixation and passion will get you very far with that. But there's also like the, the elephant in the room of how did you pull it off? You know, like coming up with these ideas and playing it. And there's like a some thought or theory that we play like nonstop Warhammer in the Art of Warhouse. <laughs> yeah, I get that all the time. I don't really understand it. <laughs> yeah, uh, we run a business here. I haven't played Warhammer in like two weeks. So um, sometimes it ebbs and flows, and a lot of times it might ebb and flow where you haven't played a game with your army or maybe one game most before you go to a super major, and then you win the super major. That is pretty much never unheard of. What is that? I I, I think to some extent it's something that I'm naturally like just tend towards is getting new information, processing it, and, and outputting it. Um, I think I'm probably better than most at getting a, new ideas in and synthesizing them without having much experience. Some people are very good at refining, where they'll get, where they're not as good at getting new information, processing it, but they're really good at granularly like working it down once they have it. Right? Some people are, are, you know, they play 20 games and they get, and they're going to be in a better spot than I would be after 20 games. Mm -hmm. But I'm better after like one, and that's just how it, like the sliders work. Um, a lot of 40k translates from one army to another in ways that faction purists tend not to want to think that they do. In my opinion, I think that 40k is 40k a lot of the time. You know, um, some armies are different in how they interact in different ways. Um, and there are some very, there's some outlier armies like, like Grey Knights are really weird. If you play like the triple Terminator build, you can't just hop on that and play it with no practice. It took me a long time before I played it at WTC. Um, but a lot of the time 40k translates. And if you really make sure you understand the army um, when you put it on the table, that will cover a lot of things. So make sure you've read the book, you read the index or the codex multiple times. Oftentimes, if I'm looking to uh, take an army to an event and I haven't played it, I will sit down and I will read every rule in the army, like start to finish. It's easier now than it ever was, right, uh, with indexes and whatnot. So I'll sit down, I'll read everything, and I'll look at everything. And I, I try to do it with fresh eyes. Obviously, I know what the meta is. I know what the meta are for every army. Like I know I could put together a list for basically any army at this point because it's, you know, it's fairly well-known. We do fix my list, that sort of thing. Like, I, I look at a lot of armies. But you go back through the army, the index, whatever, with fresh eyes, and you look at every rule and you go, hey, you know, and sometimes you look at a rule and go, hey, I think I can use this. And the answer is, no, you can't. Um, like, chaos cultists or things like that. Who would try such a thing? Yeah. Um, and sometimes you look through and you're like, that, that looks pretty decent. I wonder if I can make that work. And you try and wedge it into an army, build some stuff around it. Uh, a lot of the time, if I'm building a list and tinkering with a list, it'll take a long time to get the list right. Um, 
So in, in those kinds of examples where it takes a long time to get the list right, how do you just roll up to a tournament with like one or two reps prior to it and the list is good enough to allow you to win the tournament? And there's an element of 40K is 40K and translatable skills across factions certainly exist, but without reps and reps and reps of refinement, I mean, one of the things that most people have in common when they come onto the show and we ask about how they do is reps. Like if I had to tell you the number one common answer for how someone won a tournament, they put the work in by playing the army a gajillion times in, in essence. And you're playing the army very few times we're playing loads of 40k, consuming loads of 40k. What what do translatable skills look like? Um, just generally moving around, pre-measuring, making sure your units are in the right places, like making sure that you're projecting your threat over different objectives. Um, a lot of the time I will like phantom work through how a game would work out in my head. Like this unit's going to be the quick unit that moves around the board and tries to pick stuff off. These are going to be like the chaff units. This is going to screen. This is going to do X, Y. Um, like a lot of those roles are kind of the same, like a 40 point chaff unit in, you know, in custodies is the same as like a 70 point chaff unit in world eaters, right? They both hold your whole objective. They're just slightly different, right? Jackals and prosecutors. They're similar. They're just a little bit different. Um, I don't think people are having challenges like managing their backfield unit army to army to army, but maybe like the larger components like custodies, rapid ingress wardens, as an example, to dominate a board state. World eaters only do close combat and charge you across the table. Like two very different approaches to the game. Yeah, I, I, I don't really have like an amazing answer for you. It's always been a skill I've been fairly good at of just visualizing how an army would play and how an army would work without having to play it too many times on the table. Um, it's a lot of the time I can just work through like this is what the army's trying to do and come up with a game plan when I design the list. I think helps, like trying to work out what every unit's trying to do in list creation. So when I show up to the table, I already know this is trying to do X, this is trying to do Y, so I can just play them. How do you, um, taking one step further, you play an army very few times to take it to the tournament, but you've thought about it a ton and everything is deliberate choice and everything has its job. And then you play against eight different armies or six different armies and, and they are different caliber players and they try different approaches against you. Um, Obviously, your theory is going to get tested by trial by fire and in so many different ways. So it's not only like, you know, you can think of your army in Operation X or Y, but there's going to be four or five different things you have to figure out during the tournament live. How do you figure all of that out and process the opponent's side of things as well? So experience does help with playing against opponents, right? Because I've already played against a lot of different factions as a different army. Um, and I've also likely thought about those matchups ahead of time, right? I've considered them. Um, so having played against them with different armies definitely helps because you've experienced what they can do. You're just bringing different tools to the table to solve the same problem. Um, and a lot of the time I'll go through matchups or think about matchups ahead of time. So I'll at least come in with a game plan. I'm not trying to figure it out at the table. I know what I'm trying to do uh, ahead of time. So let's talk about letting your memes be dreams, because I think that's really what we're all here to discuss. Yeah, I have played world leaders before. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you have Angron, Allure's Skulls. What else is in this army for you? So the army, top to bottom, is Angron, Lord Invocatus, 10 Jackals, 
six exalted eight bound, two units of three exalted eight bound, three regular eight bound, two units of two spawn, and the Lord of Skulls. Um, this list is very similar to the list I took Tampa, took second place at Tampa with at the GW Tampa event. Uh, that list, literally what I dropped uh, was 10 Corn Berserkers in a Rhino with a character and the Juggernaut Lord, and I got in the Lord of Skulls. So when I see a World Eaters list, I just see Angry Red Men, a big Angry Demon Primarch, and now a Lord of Skulls. And I assume there's less Angry Red Men to afford the Lord of Skulls. Yes. So what, what is the idea in a more articulate version? Like, how do you, how do you, what's the strategy here? So the strategy here is that you have um, an army that moves very fast and it hits very hard. That's the, like the, the bottom line to the army. Angron moves, you can move Angron up to 22 inches, right? He moves 14. You can give him plus two to his move, makes him move 16. Then you can flat advance him six inches and charge. So that's 22 inches and charge. So he moves very quickly. All the uh, exalted eight bound move very quickly. All the exalted and the regular eight bound can move 17 and charge, and they can scout six. So the threat ranges early in the game are really nasty, right? They can move 23 and then declare a charge from there. Can we break down that movement just a little more granularly to make sure we can keep up with it? Yep. So you scout six inches. Mm -hmm. Then you move nine. Then you have plus two move from a blood god roll. So that's 11. That's 11. Then you have advance and charge and a CP for flat six advance. Have you played? You haven't played against my world leaders. I'm playing against world leaders. I'm asking for the audience. <laughs> no, no, no. I was just, it just struck me. I was like, <laughs> I was like, I don't think Nick's played. I've against been world charged leaders. by the red people. I know what it's like. So when you add all those up, the flat six advance, the plus two move, the nine inch move, and the six inch scout, that's 23. And so you can go that far and then declare a charge. So this is very similar to uh, the Blood Angels that I played last edition, which means that skill set just like basically directly translates into World Leaders. Combat. They don't move fast move, fast move combat. Yeah, um, it's a skill set that not a lot of people have practice with or against, and it is actually very tough to play because if what you do is you take your army and you just every game turn one you just jam it into your opponent, you'll do okay. You want, depending on your combat micro, you'll do ranging from eh to yeah, all right. You're doing all right. But really where the skill takes place is you don't have a ton of units. I didn't have a ton of units back in Blood Angels. You don't have a ton of units in um, World Leaders. The 8-bound are very good. They're very fast. They hit very hard. They're not that durable for their points cost, and they're kind of expensive. Um, and what that means is that if you get into a direct trading war, if you're not equipped to win it, you are going to fall behind very quickly on material. Angron is expensive, and because he's melee only, he's not like Magnus, where Magnus can flit around the board and pick people away um, without really exposing himself. Angron is melee only, so he gets in there. He does not have a ranged weapon to speak of. Um, when he gets in there, oftentimes he's exposing himself to being hit. So you have to have this really good understanding of tempo, right? I'm going to sacrifice Angron to go kill something because that means my opponent will have to answer Angron first, which gives the rest of my army room to breathe, to continue to follow up, things like that. So it's like a threat overload situation? It can be a threat overload. Also, learning how to not get picked up uh, by not get picked away while being in the center of the board and controlling objectives is a huge skill. Um, because if you just take six, eight bound, jam it on the center objective on turn one, you're going to lose. You're going to get most of them picked up. They're not that durable and you're going to fall behind really, really badly. Like a six man unit of exalted eight bound 
is 320 points and is hard to kill all at once, but not hard to kill. Um, and that I think would be the distinction of the list. It's hard to kill all. It's hard to kill the whole list at once. But it's not hard to kill the list. So, so if you let your opponent tee off on you for too long, you won't have an army left. Is the idea basically you're trying to expose your army for as little as possible before you charge your opponent? Yes. If you let key resources get picked up before you want them to be, before you've planned for them to be, then you are in not just trouble, but like bad trouble. So how much of the strategy is high? Is like sneak up the table with terrain, use staging points, obviously, and then charge your opponent at your earliest convenience, not you know unnaturally fast. Um, you know that's one approach versus just hold the objectives because I feel like charging them is with purpose to table them and hold objectives from behind walls is like a control strategy. And I'm kind of hearing both. Which one is this? Like two different play cycles they can run. Yes. You you have two different options at your disposal, which is the all-in, where you hit your opponent with everything, you try to win the fight from there, um, and you have the ability to sit back on objectives. And you can always choose the right one for your opponent. It's your opponent that has to thread the needle of trying to beat both, right? What do you mean by that? How do you? It's once you're choosing one, like if I choose run at my opponent, I can't unrun at my opponent. Right. Well, once you choose that, you are committed for sure. Um, but what I mean is, I'm, you go to the center, you control the center, you control the objectives, and at that point, your opponent's response determines which of the two you pick. So if they make a response that prevents the all-in, oftentimes it opens up just sitting on the objective. If they make a response to prevent me from sitting on the objectives, usually opens up the ability for me to go all in on them. Right? If they back up when I move forward, I'm not going to continue running at them. But if they push forward to try to regain control of objectives, that puts them in my threat range. It makes a lot of sense. So basically, you have these enormous threat ranges, and you know, with a scout, you, you are threatening to be in their deployment zone turn one, so you're, they're going to maybe back off from their deployment line in the first place. Then you stage up in those midfield ruins, and you have like 17-inch moving, threatening, eight-bound Ingram moves however far with advance and charge, and everything's so fast. So your opponent could definitely take the I-don't-want-to-be-in-your-charge-range approach uh, and then kind of back it up more. But at that point, they're not interacting with the game. And if they... You know, don't respect your charge distances and just try to fight you. They're fighting world eaters. That seems bad. Yeah. World eaters and blood angels back in ninth are probably two of the scariest armies to, like, walk into their threat ranges, to, like, voluntarily place yourself in those threat ranges. There's a third mode as well, which is where you bleed your army over time, which Korn loves. But, like, if your opponent tries to halfway play it, right, they, they push some units into your threat ranges, leave others out, you can always take one of your units, huck it into your opponent's, uh, the unit your opponent pushed up the board, kill that, trade, and waste a turn of time on your opponent's clock while they need to try to make, uh, the, like, the point lead in the game back up. So that's kind of the general idea of world leaders, and I totally get that. Let's let's talk about the elephant in the room, the the big old Lord of Skulls. You know, let's let the memes be dreams. Is this guy just a four hundred fifty point paperweight that also can smash you really hard? Like, what is he doing? So it gives you some unique things in different matchups. So yes, he hits really really hard. Um, How are we talking? Oh, thank you for asking. Um, he has one gun that shoots sixty inches. There's two d six shots. I need the names. This is the Skull Hurler. Thank you, Skull Hurler. Skull Hurler. Uh, 60-inch range, strength 14, AP 3, damage 3, with 2d6 shots. 
Then it has another gun called the Demon Gore Cannon. You can take the Gore Storm Cannon. That one's okay. The Demon Gore Cannon, I think, is a little better. It's a D6 shots blast at 18-inch range. But to make up for that, it's strength 14, AP4, damage D6 plus 2. Which is scary, right? That's scary. And then in combat, you it has a tank shock at strength 17 on the charge. It's pretty good. So that's 19 dice. It's probably going to do some mortals. Probably going to do some mortals. On the charge, it's uh, six attacks. You can have sustained. You can have Angron rerolls and all that. Uh, at strength, yes. AP, no. Damage, eight. Are we talking like strength 18, 20, 20? Strength, strength 17, AP, okay. four. Damage, eight. Okay, so definitely, you know, if you're taking it in full, you're taking it. And also, you can 1 CP plus 1 to wound monsters, vehicles, and characters. Yeah, and then, and then damage 8 speaks for itself. Yes. Um, how were you using this this guy? Because he doesn't really fit the bill of fast moving around the terrain. You know, he's big, chunky, and doesn't fly. Yeah. And he shoots. That's a whole different tool. He does shoot, which is a whole different tool, and he shoots quite well. So the thing people don't realize is that Angron's reroll to hit aura actually buffs shooting. So you choose it in the charge phase. In the charge phase, you pick a buff. You pick either plus one to charge, plus one attack if you're below starting strength, or uh, reroll hits in an aura. And that buff lasts until your next charge phase. So turn one, you pick the reroll hits buff. And then on turn two, you still have the reroll hits buff up for your shooting phase. And then it goes into your next charge phase and you pick reroll hits again. So turn one, you don't get the real hits, but every other turn you do. So it is actually a buff for shooting units. You don't get on turn one. It's a bit wonky. But what that means is while you have that up, you have a reroll hits Lord of Skulls that can shoot. That is pretty reliable at picking stuff up in the shooting phase. So that gives us a tool we didn't have before. We can kill things in the shooting phase. Okay, how does that help? Well, there's plenty of armies that have buffs uh, specifically, I think Custodes actually are a horrific matchup for world leaders. They have minus one damage. Most world leaders' damage is damage two. Um, they have fight first. World leaders like to be in combat, and they don't like to be fought first. So Custodes are a real problem. Custodes also have a four feel no pain on wardens, and when you charge them, they know exactly where all your damage is going, so they can pop their four up feel no pain with complete... Uh, with complete and total knowledge of what the game is going to be like. The Lord of Skulls has a lot of shots that are save or you lose a guy, right? You either pass your invuln or you're dead. And so with reroll hits and with Angron, you have something where if you point the Lord of Skulls at a unit of custodies, they have to pop minus one damage or they have to pop their forward field of pain, and they're still going to lose models even after all that. Um, and so with that, they are going to either pop CP and a reasonable amount in the shooting phase. That's very good. And then pop their four up field of pain in the shooting phase. That's really nice. And they're still going to lose models in the shooting phase. So their fight first is less effective. The minus one damage might not save them. Things like that. Past that, you also have a big doofus. And the big doofus, believe it or not, can use minus one damage in the fight phase. For the, from World Eaters. So that means when Custodes hit you, unless it's Trajan, they're going to bounce clean off. So and then, it's like super secret anti-Custodes tech. It's, it's actually legitimately really nasty into Custodes. I love that, because Custodes do seem like a great counter to World Eaters. Now, we normally save our matchup talk for the second part, but that, that is really cool, awesome shenanigans. Yeah. Most other matchups, I suppose in the World Eaters mirror, it's also really quite good. For the same reason, you have a gun, they don't. Um, but in a broad variety of matchups, it gives you, 
something to interact with your opponent in the shooting phase, be that kill transports to let guys come out. Keep your opponent honest in general. Keep your opponent honest. When you tell people you have no guns, they start walking in the open against you, and we can't have that. So having the stupid murder train running around going pew-pew, throwing skulls at them, they at least have to worry about where they are on the board. Or they're so worried about not being in your charge range that they walk into the open and get shot. The murder train has towering, so you can walk up, tag a ruin, and see over it with the gigantic axe and just shoot through. Something I've noticed, and also, by the way, the murder train is uh, hilariously tough to kill. As I said, it can activate minus one damage in combat, so combat is a little tough to get it done with. In addition, it's toughness 13, which means a lot of the anti-tank weapons out there, las cannons, dark lances, bright lances, all of that, those are all strength 12. So they go from wounding you know, most vehicles on threes, big vehicles on fours, to wounding you on fives. And you have an invuln in combat and shooting. And you have a six of feel no pain, because I'm going to be activating the feel no pain almost all the time. Which means this thing's very hard to get rid of. As long as you don't let your opponent just shoot it with their whole army, you're going to probably live. And because you have guns shooting back, they're going to be in some trouble. Like, if your opponent pops out their tank to shoot at you and they don't kill you, which they probably don't, you get to fire back and pick up their tank. Yeah, so it's a really different tool in a World Leader's Armory, and I'm super curious to see how you applied it, because it sounds like your strategy with World Leader's ships based on your opponent, based on the matchup and how they approach the game. And that sounds like exactly what we like to talk about in Part 2, which is for our Patreons, um, patreon.com slash AOW40K. You can catch Part 2 with our conversation with Jack, learn how he actually piloted this World Warriors Army, going through his matchups at the Onslaught GT and some other matchups. And exactly, let's figure out if this Lord of Scrolls was memeing or dreaming. Jack, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Nick. And listeners, thank you so much for listening. We will be back next week with another episode. Do check out that Patreon, and we will catch you later. Goodbye. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. The Art of War 40K.com.